Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. In recent years, civil debate seems to have given way to increasing levels of political polarization and divisive public discourse. Yet a democratic society depends on the ability of its citizens to address differences in a temperate fashion and to resolve conflicts without resorting to violence. What resources, then, are we to call upon to promote a more tolerant and civil society? Today we're talking to John McGowan, professor of English and comparative literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This year, as a fellow at the center, John is exploring the ways that literature, specifically the affirmative power of comedy, may help us recognize our common humanity and find ways to transcend the things that set us apart from one another. Welcome, John. Thank you. So let's start with some definitions for our audience. How would you define civility? Well, civility is at its most minimal, simply the tolerance of differences, the acceptance that we live in a society together and have to find ways to get along. But of course, it can go beyond that towards something like courtesy and politeness. And even further, one would hope in the best of circumstances, to a kind of cherishing of the differences and the variety that are brought to the table by different people in a society. And of course, we understand that a civil society rests upon civility, upon civil practices. What kind of resources do we have for thinking about these lived practices of civility? Well, the most basic distinction I want to draw is between the use of speech, the use of words and deliberation and argument, even when it reaches that point of contention, as opposed to silencing or, at the worst, violence. So any society reaches the point of what we might call civil war, and it's interesting the word civil is used there also, when two parties to a conflict are unable any longer to talk to one another. So a lot of it is based on talk, and a lot of what literature offers, especially in comedy, are models for talking to one another. And therefore, what we're trying to do in a civil society and by the use of civility is to offset the possibility of tragedy. Absolutely. So tragedy focuses often on intransigence. So the tragic hero digs his heels in and refuses to be moved. And often, of course, that's seen as noble when you take a stand like that. But the refusal of compromise means that the ability to move towards a negotiated end, towards an agreement with others, is in some cases, taken off the table. I'm going to ask you for a definition now of comedy. What is comedy? What do we mean by comedy? And what emotions does comedy help to promote? Well, the term comedy, especially in the Western literary tradition, goes back to Dante, and it pointed to two specific things in Dante. One was the fact that it has a happy ending, so as opposed to tragedy, the comedy has a happy ending. The second was the fact that comedy deals with people like us, not nobility, not heroes, not superheroes at at all, and in the vernacular, in the language also used by the common people. So comedy pointed to a kind of realistic literary mode that dealt with people like us, ordinary, everyday things in the language that we use, not the ecclesiastical language of Latin in Dante's time, and it leads to a happy ending. But comedy also partakes of, and part of the source of comedy is disruption and a kind of devolution into a lot of messiness that then that gets put back together. Explain that to us. I mean, is, is, is the source for civility 
uh, and comedy as a description of what it takes to become a civil society? Do we have to first devolve into messiness? Possibly. So comedy is about how to manage change. So if tragedy is often about resistance to change and a refusal to accept change, comedy is about managing change. So in comedy, the characters do begin in a bad situation in a society that doesn't serve their needs, often with various obstacles to the satisfaction of those desires. And then comedy has to move through a set of processes to reach a more satisfactory ending. And it's precisely those processes that I'm actually interested in. In certain cases, violence is the process. So certain characters are removed, certain obstacles are removed through scapegoating or other kinds of violence. But there are also cases of comedy where there's not a resort to violence, but there are other means towards achieving the happy ending. And you're drawing in your project at least on two major theorists, Martha Nussbaum and Stanley Cavell. Can you talk about, let's start with Martha Nussbaum. So what does Martha Nussbaum bring to your project? So Nussbaum has been the most influential of recent moral philosophers to return to Aristotle for a notion of what she calls human flourishing. So out of Aristotle's politics, but also out of his ethics, she says that the sign of a good society is one that allows for the flourishing of all its members. So Nussbaum, in a sense, gives us the ideal that we want, a society in which no one is handicapped, no one is left out of the provision of the things that people need in order to flourish. And Stanley Cavell? So Cavell is interesting for me for two reasons. One, because he identified a specific genre of comedy, which he calls the genre of remarriage. And he studied that in relation to a series of American films of the 1930s and 1940s. But I want to take it back and use it to talk about Joyce's Ulysses, which can also be thought of, although I don't think anyone has done this, as a possible comedy of remarriage. And the point about the comedy of remarriage, then, is the negotiation from what seems like an intractable difference, which has led to a divorce between the couple, to a reuniting of the couple, and how they have to work through their issues in a variety of ways to get to that successful remarriage. The other thing I take from Cavell is his attempt to value the everyday, the ordinary. So comedy is a non-heroic genre, but it wants to reconcile us to our imperfections, to our disagreements, to our conflicts with others, but find a way to still affirm the everyday life rather than looking for salvation in some perfection elsewhere. So let's go to Ulysses. So we're talking about one of the most complex and influential novels of the 20th century, if not the most complex and influential. So what is Leopold Bloom's Odyssean journey throughout Dublin in 1904 tell us about what it takes to be civil and how we might use comedy to uh, promote a more civilized life? So there's a number of things about Bloom. One is, importantly, that he is the common man. He is contrasted to Stephen, who's the intellectual, who thinks that in some sense through philosophical highfalutin thought, you can somehow reach an appropriate accommodation with the world. Uh, Stephen does not seem particularly successful in that, and I think Bloom is offered as an alternative. And the other thing about Bloom is that one of the alternatives of that, and this is classic for comedy, is a return to an emphasis on the body so that against the mental abstractions of Stephen, we have, in fact, Bloom's obsessions with and 
just simply his bodily functions. Famously, he does just about everything during that day, from defecating to masturbating to sweating to eating various things. So the return to the body is Joyce's attempt, I think, to return us to the everyday and to think about ways to, again, accommodate and also affirm the fact of the everyday. And then finally, of course, crucially important to me is that as opposed to the Odyssey, which is the basis for Joyce's plot, Bloom does not resort to violence as a response to his wife's unfaithfulness. So where Odysseus kills the suitors and their maidservants (laughs) at the end of the Odyssey, Joyce's Bloom quite conspicuously um, and self-consciously turns away from any thought of violence as a response to Molly's unfaithfulness. And you have a, a broad range of examples that you're using in this project, so I, I want us to touch on uh, some of the others. So let's talk about Trollope, and what does Trollope bring to the project? Well, one of the, what got me interested in this project in the first place was a sense, uh, Martha Nussbaum is one of the most important philosophers of liberalism and of liberal democracy currently in the world, and I began to think about the ways in which her understanding of liberal democracies and liberal democratic society is modeled in Trollope, who it seems to me is the most straightforwardly liberal of all the major 19th century British novelists. So Trollope is very concerned about the ways in which commercial society is a threat to various liberal values of tolerance and cooperation. And he also is very much a novelist, philosopher of love. He wants to try to think about the ways in which kindness, tolerance, forbearance, and love can ground a certain form of social being that he feels that commercial society is threatening. And how about Iris Murdoch? Murdoch is someone I read as torn between a hope for a transcendent guarantor of the meaning of human life. She's a a would-be theist. She wants another platonic realm that underwrites the significance of this realm. So in some ways, she's against the notion that the everyday can be sufficient. Yet there are always other characters in Murdoch who embrace the everyday. So there's a tangle, a, a, a war in her between the characters who find the everyday sufficient and the characters who long for a certain kind of transcendence. Whereas in her philosophical writings, she quite straightforwardly opts for the transcendent side herself. So I'm interested in a sense in the way that her novels work against her own stated philosophical commitments. And the project also turns to popular culture, and specifically you're looking at um, some situation comedies, television situation comedies. So what do they bring to this project? So what I love about the situation comedies, and in some sense they do go back to Trollope, because Trollope was also a serial writer, But it seems to me that comedies, especially serial comedies, are faced with the situation where you absolutely are not allowed to kill off any characters. (laughs) They have to all exist. I also love the fact that they're ensemble pieces. So again, contradiction to the tragedy, unlike the single hero who's our focus, we instead have a broad range of characters, so they represent a society. And then the other thing about the situation comedies is that it's always a closed society. So 30 Rock is a good example for me, or Parks and Recreation. These are the people you must get along with. You have to find a way to live with them in peace and to manage along, even when they irritate you, when they're eccentric in various kinds of ways. So the foibles of humans are displayed in situation comedies, but are also accepted 
they aren't seen as morally reprehensible or as something that justifies driving someone out of the social setting. And you also refer to Hannah Arendt's Amor Mundi. Unpack that for our audience. So what does that do to the project of civility? One of the things that's perhaps hardest to do in talking about comedy post-1800, prior to 1800 and Northrop Frye and C.L. Barber were among the writers who make a good case for this, the comic ending, the happy ending usually of the couple that gets united after they've been obstacles thrown in the way of their love, the comic ending stands for a reformed society. So the overly rigid society of the beginning that placed obstacles in the way of their desire is reformed through the process of the comedy. It's harder to see that post-1800 because the connection or the consonance between the happy couple and the full society is not as obvious and not as easy to draw. It's not clear at the end of Ulysses, even if Molly and Bloom get back together, that means Ireland will be transformed. Probably not. So what I like about the Arendt is precisely that it takes the love of the couple and translates that love to some extent to a social or a political register. So what Arendt says is that in our relations to others, we construct the world, we construct society precisely through our interactions with others, and it's our commitment to the ongoing existence of that world, our love of that world, that then, in a sense, tempers our relationships to others. So let's apply that to your project now. What will your project do to shore up what many believe to be is a kind of fraying and fragile democracy? That's, of course, the part that I'm trying hardest to work on, and in some ways it's the most difficult, because what I really want to get to is by digging into these particular instances, Trollope, the Situation Comedies, Ulysses, to talk about specific mechanisms, specific mechanisms of tolerance, specific mechanisms of conversation, specific mechanisms of deliberation, all in the service of what I would then call a love of the world. So in some sense, it's a moral call. We should love the world, not hate it. And to say so much of what we do seems to suggest, in fact, we do hate it, not love it. We have to affirm this world and find ways of affirming it. But also I want to think about the modes of conversion, compromise, negotiation, tolerance, conversation that these comedies display for us as perhaps guides for our own behavior. And may your work have great impact. Thank you, John McGowan, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.